0: Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there we just need to learn how to take on the challenges hunting is completely different up there i've harvested 26 big game animals you can fool their eyes but you can't fool their nose 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way it's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal i don't know what to expect if there's anybody i want in the woods with me it'll be you Welcome back to another episode of the Western Rookie Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Krebs, and today I have Jeff Cordero. And I saw your Instagram. I don't know how I came across it, but I, I noticed two things about it. First, right off the bat, obviously, you spend a lot of time on a NASCAR track because you're you're on a NASCAR team, and I've never talked to anyone. I've never met anyone in my life that that has that for a day job, which seems really cool. And then you also clearly love archery and hunting. So, I thought those two things together would make a really cool podcast, so I reached out and and here we are. So, how are you doing this morning, Jeff?
1: Doing good. Uh, it was late night last night. We actually, speaking of the NASCAR thing, we won yesterday's race. Heck so, yeah. Uh, that puts 5 on the season. Um, yeah, that's it's good, man. Uh, so yeah, my full-time job, I'm a front tire changer on the number 24 car for William Byron in the Cup Series. This is my 14th year being in NASCAR, pitting race cars and making a living from doing it. Uh, not all of them have been with William. I've been on some other teams. But, uh, yeah, it's it's quite the day job, I guess. <laughs> it's uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of
0: fun. It's it's interesting that you say you're a front tire changer on the team. So it's yep. that dialed in where everyone's got, like, one specific job.
1: Yeah, especially when it comes to the pit crew side of it. We have one front tire changer, which is me. I do both the right front and left front. We have one rear tire changer. He does the right rear, left rear. We have one jack man, one tire carrier, one gas man. And we all specialize in what we do. Uh, so there is no like, I'm not going to carry tires one day or I'm not going to jack the race car one day. Like I am very specialized at what I do. And that's kind of how it is in the racing industry is everyone kind of has their job and that's what they hone and craft. It's like, yeah, it's like you're not going to see you know, Tom Brady stepping up on the offensive line to throw some blocks you know so it's it's uh it's very
0: specialized how do you how do you get that job do you do you say like hey i want to work in nascar and they're like well how fast can you change tires
1: that's yeah that's way further down the line uh so i got the job i grew up in connecticut um i grew up working helping a buddy of mine out at his local short track you know in high school just kind of like working on race cars and And helping more people out. And I kind of got to a situation where I was going to college, but I was spending more time at the racetrack working on race cars, trying to like, you know, pursue that dream. And I needed to make a decision. So I quit school, moved from Connecticut to North Carolina, and just hustled for a year. I did every tryout I could. I did, I knocked on doors. I talked to anyone that would listen uh, to try to get a job and eventually got one. So once I got my foot in the door, uh, you know, kind of, did everything I could to stay inside of that opening and just kind of hustle and just continue to grow and learn new things, learn in the industry and got into the pit crew stuff because it it just looked cool. I was twenty-one, I was athletic, I was like, let's go. This is this looks like a ton of fun.
0: Well, it does look like a ton of fun. And I will admit I am not I'm not the most knowledgeable guy when it comes to racing. I know that there's like a difference between NASCAR and IndyCar. And I mean, I know that there's some differences and I've watched a few races, but I am, you know, I don't watch all of them. I really don't know what the season looks like, if you will. And so that's, I guess, what I was just going to lead into is is what is the what is your race season look like compared to hunting season? Is it like pretty much a summer thing and then it wraps up pretty nicely for fall? Or is there a healthy overlap where you're like, oh, man, I'd love to hit the woods, but we got a race and I'm I'm the front tire changer. I got to be there.
1: There's a healthy overlap. Uh, so we race from Valentine's Day weekend all the way until the first weekend in November. Every weekend we're doing two races, Saturday, Sunday. So we are busy. So, like, during those September months, like the late August, September, October, and early November, I'm at the racetrack. And the further we get into the season, so, like, starting the beginning of September is when we start our playoffs. So, that's when everything's more important. That's when everything's more ramped up. Everyone's trying to put in extra time, extra effort. Um, It's a little harder to get days off, you know, to go do whatever during the week. So, it, yeah, it's like... I got two things that are kind of coming together at the same time in the fall and it's, I mean, it'd be great if NASCAR was over by September, but it's just not. And, uh, it's been a learning experience and trial and error, trying to figure out how to hunt around the NASCAR schedule. Because like you said, like I have somewhere to be every weekend. It's not like I can just take a race off. I have to be there. So trying to coordinate everything and get into the Western hunting and traveling and doing all that. And being able to navigate that has kind of been kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say this where I like I, I strive, but it's something that I have to pay attention to. And I think I've got it ironed out pretty well now.
0: Yeah, that sounds really challenging because, you know, the average person works probably the opposite, like Monday through Friday. And then they usually have some stuff going on on the weekends where it could still be hard to pull away for a weekend. But when you have every weekend, like, you know, it's blocked. So how does it work to get out? Like early season, September, October. Cause I do, I mean, I have obviously, I watched you get, you did some tack stuff or some, some mountain 3D courses and a couple elk hunts. Like, what does that look like then? Do you have to get like a backup to cover a weekend so you can be gone a good stretch or are you just like, hey, we can leave Monday morning, we got to be back Friday evening?
1: Yeah. It's the, it's, I have hard in and hard out dates and it all bases around the, the NASCAR schedule, where we're at that weekend, where we're going. Um, so, for me, like September, that, that rut hunt that I like to do, go out west, right? I did Colorado. I've done Montana. I'm headed out to Montana again. We run Bristol night race, which is on a Saturday, which most of our races are on Sunday, but there's an occasional few that run on Saturday night. So, it kind of gives me an extra day and lead in the later in that next week. So, we run Bristol night race Saturday night, uh, September 16th. That is not too far from us. Bristol's not that. Far from north carolina so we'll fly right back we'll land probably i don't know one two o'clock in the morning and i have a flight out of charlotte at 5 40 on sunday morning to fly out to bozeman now i have if that for some reason if the race gets rained out or whatever i just kind of have to adjust my flight schedule like on the fly oh, okay but like so I'll fly out to Montana, hunt all week long, and I have a hard out. Like some people, you know, oh, they kill something on the last day. It's, it's a great story. They just, they call into work. They get an extra day of PTO. You know, maybe they, right. they test their wife's patience a little bit. And, hey, I'll be back whenever we get back, you know. But for me, it is like hard out. No matter what, you have to be on that plane. Uh, and then I'll fly on Saturday from Montana down to Texas. And I'll be fly straight from hunting to the racetrack all my
0: gear (laughs) that's that's wild so what does that look so for anyone that isn't hasn't shot an elk yet a lot of people have gone elk hunting but when you shoot an elk that's when the real work starts and and a lot of times you shot them because you were in some nasty hole where no one else was going into so you could I mean you especially if you're a one-man crew you could be looking at at least a two-day job to get it out so what is the like, what does your end-of-the-week strategy look like? So let's just assume your hard-out is, like, you have a Friday flight, right? Because you're, yep. you're racing Saturday. Yep. Um, and so what does, like, Thursday Thursday evening look like for you? Are you kind of like, eh, we'll go out, we'll keep her close to the road, and if so that way if we shoot something, it's like a two-hour job instead of a two-day job? Or are you doing the, like, hey, I know there's, like, three different cowboys in this area, where if I shoot one, I can be like, hey, I shot one. I'm a NASCAR driver. Can you go pick it up at this pin with your horses and bring it to this butcher shop? The butcher shop knows you're coming, and I'll fly back next time and figure it out.
1: Yeah, so uh, it, it's kind of like that. Early in the week is kind of where I, I get a little further away from the road. I kind of do everything backwards. Yeah, I figure out, like, like you said, Thursday I have to be within, you know, a half mile, three quarters of a mile, maybe a mile max from the road if it's a straight shot and there's not a lot of terrain. And then, you know, Wednesday to Wednesday morning is kind of that where I start playing that game. Mm -hmm. Everything up until maybe Tuesday night, Wednesday, midday at lunch, I might get a little further away because I try to figure out however far it takes me to get where I'm going. I can do the math from there. Okay, it took me, you know, two hours to get into this, wherever I'm at, three hours to get in, you know, to get over the two miles, two and a half miles it took me to get in there with a full pack. So you figure, you know, you add a little time on the way back out. If you're bringing meat out and you start doing the math, how many shuttles it's going to take. And you're like, okay, you figure the math out and you're like, all right, if I were to kill something Wednesday morning, like right at daybreak, I'm shuttling meat, I'm shuttling stuff for 20 hours. And then you try to figure out where you're going to get those 20 hours. And it might be you're just shuttling meat and eating in between and you're not getting much, if any sleep, because you have that hard out date. There's no, right. I uh, just, maybe if I just sit here and rest and get like a three, four hour nap, be fine. No, I just don't have that option. Um, also like, like you mentioned, finding people in the area that will do uh, a pack out. I haven't had to do that yet. Um, cause everything, the one elk I did shoot, I was pretty close to the road, but it's, it's always an option. I always ahead of time plan, like who my butcher shop's going to be, uh, I call them. Hey, are you guys open 24 seven? If I were to drop something off late at night, like if I get back to the trail, head at two in the morning, right. would you take something? Do you do rush jobs? Do you ship? Where can you ship to? How do you ship? Uh, because for me, like to kind of get that meat, I'm not just going straight from wherever I'm at home. I'm going from wherever I'm at to a racetrack, which I'm going to be there for two days. Now I have to find a cooler source there. And, that gets complicated. So for me, it's just easier to ship anything I need back. Uh, Finding a taxidermist, just having that plan ahead of time. So if when I do become successful, I I have a plan for it. I'm not scrambling like, oh, what do I do now? Like I'm calling everyone up. No, I have, okay, they're open 24 seven. They're open. They can do a rush job. They can ship, you know, it's kind of, it's laid out ahead of time for me. So I don't have to worry about it because I'm already stressed out. Like I have this hard out time, hard out date. I have to be there. So,
0: yeah, no, it's, it's something where it's, I mean, like your situation, it's 100% like mandatory to have all of those plans in place because for you, that's like, this is plan a, like plan a is bringing this meat to a butcher shop because you're not flying with three Yeti coolers like that. Oh my gosh. The, the cost of that. Whereas most people, we drive out. Like, we're going to Colorado in three weeks. We we were in Montana last year. Our plan A is going to be hang it, and if it's cool enough, we'll just keep it hung, put it in the shade, and then we'll drive it home with us. We got, we got two trucks, two trailers. We'll be fine. But it never hurts to have that backup plan. Like, in our case, like, even if we shot a bull last night, you know, we still might be three miles off the road. So it's like, oh, man. Like, do we, does everyone get delayed? Like, do we send eight guys to work late or do we call this cowboy and we each chip in 75 bucks and he's going to bring in a team of horses and get it out for us so we can go back to camp and start breaking down camp. And so all of those things you just talked about, taxidermy options, butcher shop options, packout options, all of that I think is worthwhile having in your, in your toolbox, even if you don't plan on needing it, like you obviously do need it, but like the taxidermy thing. A lot of laws nowadays, you can't transport brain and nervous tissue across state lines. So if you shoot something that you want to get taxidermied, like all of a sudden you're like, man, I don't have a plan. Like you said, maybe it's 2 o'clock in the morning and nobody's going to be answering the phone at 2 o'clock in the morning. Whether or not they'll have a cooler outside to drop your stuff in or not, they're not going to answer the phone for you. So now you're scrambling or wasting a day anyway. So it sounds sounds like what you're doing is kind of like what everyone should have in their mind, even if you don't need it
1: yeah, that's something I learned, you know through NASCAR. Like I said, I've done that for fourteen years. and there is not a situation, a you know, an outcome that we haven't already predicted or uh, a situation that we haven't already planned for., uh, we do a lot of traveling all the time. So I'm constantly traveling. It's me packing a bag going to the weekend. it's it's super simple. I can just I visualize what I need in my head. I know what we're going to do. I know where we're going. And then, you know, as the race shows up, I know what the race is. I know what the, even though I don't know exactly what our crew chief and our managers are deciding what the race strategy is going to be, you've done enough of them where you're like, okay, we know about what to expect. And I take that mentality with me to go hunting because I don't have, I want to maximize the time I have in the field. And, you know, it's already stressful enough doing the hunting and, you know, trying to figure out what you're doing, especially the times I've been solo, like how many times I just big my head up against the wall. Cause I don't know what I'm doing, you know? So you're just trying to figure it out. If there's one thing I don't want to worry about, it's what happens if I actually do kill something? What happens if I do get one on the ground? What are, what am I going to do? You know, like the worst thing that happened for me would be to kill something really late in the hunt, not have a plan to get it out. And then, you know, I don't have that option to be, I'm going to be scrambling trying to like drop pins and call people while I'm in Texas, like for the race, trying to figure that out. And then I'm going to take that stress and bring it to the racetrack with me, which I need to perform there. So you want to take as less stress with you as possible to the racetrack. So it's one of those things like, the the more options and plans you have ahead of time, the more stress free it is. It's like I tell you before you go leaving a hunt, make sure you have all your chores done at the house, your honey do list is shored up, so that way when you go hunting, right. you know your family affairs, your house is in order. You're not you're not stressing about like, is my wife going to be mad at me because I didn't take the trash out or. You know, so you have all that stuff in line. So when you go there, you're you're hunting stress-free. The only thing you're stressed about is the actual hunt. So having a plan for, you know, multiple contingencies when you get there, I found for me that's, it takes a lot of stress off my plate there. But it also, it gives me those options where I'm not scrambling trying to figure it out. I know exactly what to do if that plan doesn't work. I know, okay, this is other butcher shop. He's a little further away, but, you know, they have a cooler out there, you know, so yeah having options and knowing ahead of time what you're going to do is going to help a lot
0: oh yeah for sure i mean i i did a i did a solo elk hunt and it was in the it was in the high country in colorado even though it was a rifle hunt so we were at above tree line you know the whole hunt took place basically eleven five and higher i shot my bull at 12, 12 five. this episode is brought to you by steelhead outdoors What makes a Steelhead Outdoors gun safe stand out, aside from being the only American-made fire-insulated modular gun safe on the market, is the fact that you can customize your safe to be the perfect fit for you. Whether you pick one of the fan-favorite colors inspired by our national parks or one of the nearly 1,000 custom colors they offer, your safe is going to be perfect. You can even get a safe in a rust color where they actually make the metal rust to just the right level and then they seal it so you always have a perfectly rustic looking safe. And that's just on the outside. When it comes to the inside, you can configure it all kinds of different ways by adding panels to the door, using shelves on half to organize ammo, or even adding their motion activated light kit. I went with their brand new Recon 32 line in the awesome tactical looking black and white. And I currently have my safe set up with lawn guns on half and shelves on the other side so I can store all of my ammo and I love it. But the best part is it's completely modular. So as your firearm collection grows, you can configure your Steelhead Outdoor safe to match. Check out SteelheadOutdoors.com. To build your custom safe and use the code Western rookie one word Western rookie to save a hundred and fifty dollars on your steelhead outdoors safe <laughs> and uh, I was by myself and then it started to snow and I wasn't eating enough and I start and I wasn't drinking enough and so then I started getting like cramps and I started having like all kinds of like issues like I'm dizzy and but I'm still hunting. And I, it's just kind of weird. When you get up in the mountains, it's almost like your appetite just goes haywire. And you, like, you have oh. to force yourself to eat sometimes. And I think that was the problem. Is like, I'm just not hungry. And so I wasn't eating enough. Well, I got on, I glass some milk, and they were way up. I mean, it was, like, a mile up and then, like, two or three miles down a ridge in the snow. And it was 12 inches of snow above the tree line. So you're post-hauling pretty much every step. And I'm on my way to these elk, and I'm, like, halfway there, and I can see them with my naked eye. You know, they're they're over there. They're, like, a mile and a half over there. I can see them bedded up in the sun. And I'm, like, I got to turn around because, like, I even if I shoot this thing, I'm not going to be able to get it out of here by myself. There's no, like, just straight down the mountain option to the road. Like, both sides of the mountain are, like, cliffed out black timber nastiness. And I so I just walked away because I didn't make a plan ahead of time that would that would work out for me looking back I should have had that backup option of like who could I call to help like a team of horses or something if there's I mean imagine if there's a a once-in-a-lifetime bull and you got to walk away from it because you didn't make a plan to get it out of there
1: yeah and I I think going into that too like I plan you know the back half of the hunt what I'm going to do when I'm successful but a lot of it goes into planning the hunt at the beginning side of it with the e-scouting and figuring out where I'm going to go knowing how much time I have you know Like, I don't want to get myself into a situation where, yeah, Wednesday, I have to come out wherever I'm going, but I'm six miles away from the road, you know? So I'd love to go, you know, steep and deep, get out there, away from people. Like, for me, that that sounds awesome. But, like, in reality, if I'm by myself, I can't – not that I can't get out there physically or mentally, but it's like I just can't do it because I'm only going to be in there for two days, and I don't want to spend, you know, a whole day – A morning and an evening just trekking in somewhere to trek out so i try to do a lot of my e-scouting stay closer to roads or at least like hey if i can go through this one area if i just keep going maybe i'll poke out on another road or like another main road or maybe i can you know hitch a ride with like a cowboy or something on a flatbed just to get back to where you know the road that i parked on you know something Mm -hmm. where it gives me options where you know i'm not too far away because I can't get too far away, but I'm also far enough off of that. Like they call it that magic band around the road. Like if you get like a mile yeah. off of it, you know, most people stay in that band. So it's like, it's a, it's a balance. So I'm usually in that, like, I don't know, mile to three miles off the road, but it's also not straight up vertical. I try to not take easier routes, but routes that are manageable where if something does get down, I don't have to kill myself trying to get it out because again, I'm going somewhere that weekend to perform a duty, you know, an athletic performance duty. So I can't like I'm already trash myself enough throughout the week. There's I don't want to absolutely murder myself because I don't have 10 days to recover when I get back home.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Do you typically backpack hunt like set up? You hunt all day, find a spot, set up your tent in the morning. You break your tent down, put it back on your pack and keep going or are you doing like a spike camp slash base camp where you're returning to that same spot every night?
1: Uh, a little of both. So when I did Colorado two years ago, I, that's what I did. I kind of uh, camped on my back, got in somewhere, camped, um, got on Elk the next day, was in there for two days, and then for the rest of the week, I'm pretty much sleeping out of the truck or right at the truck. Uh, last year of Montana, just the way things went, I went to a spot that I thought was going to be really good and it would have been really good two weeks earlier. But at the time I got there, it wasn't. And I was kind of like, I don't really want to spend all this time in here. It's like windy. I'm not seeing anything and they sign I'm seeing is really old. So for me, I don't have the time to, if I'm not seeing elk or smelling elk or seeing sign like fresh, I don't have time to go in somewhere and hole up and try to glass and try to figure it out so for me like if i get in there even if it's a four or five mile hike in and i'm not seeing anything i'm going to turn right back around and work my way out and go somewhere else because i'm i don't have the luxury of just waiting for him to kind of pass through back there so yeah it's a little of both it just depends i have everything to spike camp and that's also a lot easier to pack on planes and travel with so Yeah, Uh, it makes it where it's like yeah i have a base camp like people have their base camp back at their truck but you know i might have luxuries of like real food grill you know for me it's like i'm still eating freeze-dried meals at the truck and i'm still you know sleeping on my sleeping pad on the ground because i don't have i don't have the luxury of bringing a lot of stuff like in a truck for a camp so it's i don't know it's like spike camping at the truck it's not the most glamorous but it's uh it's what I can fly
0: with. It's still better than, it's still, like, nicer, more comfortable than uh, than true spike. Because you can, like, yeah, I can turn my truck on, listen to the radio, AC, better seat. I can sit on the tailgate. I can get out of the shade or out into the shade or whatever. Um, yeah, I'm
1: not worried. I don't have to walk anywhere for water. I got it.
0: Right, exactly, all that stuff. One thing that you might want to keep in mind, it, it always depends on, like, where you want to hunt. But there's a ton of Forest Service cabins across the west. And you can rent those suckers really cheap, comparatively. I'll have to look mean, into that. Like they used to be like twenty five bucks a night, and they could sleep like five people usually. So it's <laughs> it would give you like usually they have like a wood house, like the Rangers chop wood, keep them stocked up, so you could have like a wood fire if you get wet and dry out, and then like you could cook some stuff on. Like you still can't bring a lasagna because you know, you're flying. It would just you know yeah. incremental um, comfort, but. Yeah, those things go pretty well. But that was what I was going to ask because it does seem, well, it seems like what you're doing is, like, default aggressive. I don't know if you listen listened to, like, Jocko Willink or read books, but, like, how they operated in the seals was always default aggressive. And it seems like that's kind of how you're hunting. Like, you're like, I have to be really fast. I have to be really efficient. Like, if there's not elk here, I don't have time to waste for them to come back in here. I have to move fast. I have to go in deep right off the beginning of the trip, whereas I feel like our group and a lot of groups, they start out slow. It's like, all right, let's check out here. And and then you start, like, expanding your circle and, and how aggressive you are towards the end of the hunt because you're like, we're running out of time. Now let's dive really in deep. We know there's going to be elk there. When you talk to other elk hunters, do you feel like you're you're, like, doing better overall, whether it's, like, not necessarily always tagging out, but you're like, they're like, yeah, we didn't get into elk until, like, the last day. And you're like, I was into elk, like, day one. Like, I, I don't know. I just dove in, and all of a sudden there's elk there. Do you feel like your system is, like, getting you closer right off the bat?
1: Yeah, I do. Uh, I think that um, I am aggressive, a little more aggressive on my hunt strategy. And some of that comes from, you know, being in racing. It, we're, we live by the stopwatch. Everything is fast. Everything is timed. So you have to be aggressive for it. Uh, I think I carry that into the elk hunting because, like I said, I don't have time to kind of piddle around and, you know, go right. check this area out or go check that area out. I kind of make these, one of my e-scouting plan, I've done the Mark Livesey's treeline pursuit. I kind of have my my plans mm. where I'm going. And I plan A is I'm going to, this is an aggressive one. I'm going to get in here. It's maybe going to be the furthest one from the road. It's going to be the hardest one to terrain traverse to get there. I'm going to check that out and if I'm not seeing elk, I'm out. I'm already going to plan B, whether it's later that day, whether it's the next morning, whether it's, you know, moving spots at night. It's, I just don't have the time to waste. Like I, it would be great if I had 10, 14 days to go out there and just kind of like chill and kind of ease into it. Mm -hmm. But it's like right out of the truck, it's loaded up, gone, no hanging out. If I have time during, if I have daylight hours to move i'm gonna do it and even at night i'm gonna move whether it's i've done the road bugling thing at night trying to listen for bugles um i've also i think this is pretty underrated but like if you're driving in a unit you can see where people are camping and then you can see where those people are camping are probably going to be elk hunters especially that time of year Mm -hmm. if you watch as you're driving like maybe you're moving spots middle of the day national forest roads You know, you might move and you might see this truck that was parked at this campsite two days ago, but now it's parked over here down this national forest road. You know, they they've probably gotten into elk, or they're there for a reason. So, learning how to hunt off of the pressure, like where people are going. I'm not saying just blow up their spot, park next to them, and walk in and be like, "Hey, what's going on?" But hey, if they're in this little condensed area, you see a few trucks parked off these national forest service roads, it's like maybe one person might be just going for a walk in the woods with their bow, but there's three trucks within like a mile. Maybe there's elk in here, you know, and you start to look at the map real quick and you're like, okay, there's a water source, there's feed, you know, maybe they're not that deep. You just kind of, right. It's public, man. You just get in there and yeah, it sucks, but I don't know. You mean you (laughs) can hunt the
0: fringes too. Like you're, you're just elk or, like, especially in the West, they, they can be a little nomadic where it's like, hey, they might be in this drainage this this year. But then, like, especially cattle grazing rotations, that can switch up, like, what side of a drainage the elk are on. Like, if if this is the summer range this year, so this other range is the winter range, he probably hasn't grazed that. So that one's probably full of feed this year. And so sometimes you're just like, hey, all the trucks are over here this year. The elk must be in this drainage And, you know, obviously if there's four of them parked on this trailhead, I'm probably not going to hit that trailhead. I'm just going to look at the map and be like, okay, they're going up this way right off the bat. They're probably pressuring this little area anyway. So I'm going to come in around this, like this way, you know, hunt this fringe and hundred percent. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's like, it's just me when I'm out there or it's me, maybe me and a buddy, you know, but if I had, if I had 20 people out there hunting, you know, it kind of like if we're all in the same area, like. That's, it's probably, they're there for a reason, you know, especially if they've drug a camper out there, they've probably been there for a little bit. Maybe it's, yeah. One truck, if I've got, I've driven in, I've driven in really deep to somewhere down some really sketchy roads, to this awesome spot that I thought was going to be great. And I get there and there's not a single truck. There's nothing. There's no old campsite. And I'm like, I'm either going to be smothered in elk or it's going to be a ghost town. And I walked around for a whole day and it was the one in montana where it was windy and i saw a ton of old elk beds a lot of old sign but it was old sign they had already moved up and gone out of there and i'm like
0: yeah dude it's tough like that it's not like whitetails where you know like we have the family farms back home and we just i just me and my wife just bought a farm that we live on now and especially at the family farms back home like i'm 20 years into hunting that property so i know Like, I can look at the map and be like, all right, I'm going to see, like, 15 deer tonight if I sit in this one stand. And these are, like, seven, eight-generation does from when we started hunting this farm. It's just it happens every year the same way. But with elk, it's like the week to week it can be different. Like you said, like, they were in this valley two weeks ago. Like, there's all kinds of two-week-old sign. There's rubs on every tree, yet there's no bugles. There's no elk. All the wallows are cleared up. Like they're obviously not here today. And then two weeks from now, they could be back in that, back in there, hot and heavy. And you, you never really know where you, you know, like, Hey, there's mount, there's elk in those mountains, right? Like whatever, yeah. pick a mountain range in Montana, there's elk in the mountain range, but they might not like to pick the spot. They could be two miles to the left, two miles to the right, up 3000 feet, down 3000 feet. And you can't like, even if you have those twelve, ten 10 to 14 days, it can be hard to dial in on them. And you're doing like typically, it sounds like four real days of hunting with like two what weird days on either end traveling. Like maybe you're getting in at two p.m. so you can get a couple hours in on the slope that you know that day you arrive, and maybe your flight's not till six p.m. on Friday night, so you can hunt a little bit in the morning or basically at that point you're probably more so scouting for if you ever come back to this unit. On your way out with the truck like taking a couple new roads on the way back but yeah so it's like four days you gotta you gotta make them count
1: yeah and i think like i kind of got to a situation a couple years ago probably it was pre-covid and it was it was one of those things where i would seen people all cunning you know i'd follow it on instagram watch it on youtube and i'm like man that'd be really cool to do but i just don't have the time to do it i don't have the time to invest in it mm-hmm. I can't drive out there because if me from North Carolina driving, even to Colorado is 24 hours, it's a whole day wasted driving. So I'm like flying with all that stuff. It just seemed like too far out of reach. And I kind of was just, I started thinking about it and I'm like, well, I can afford to fly out there. So I'm just going to fly out there. I'd rather hunt for four hard days than not be able to do it for another 5 to 8 years, you know? So it was right. kind of one of those I kind of was a situation where I'm like you can do it on just like people can kill something on the last day, you can kill it on the first day. So you might as well put in the time, try to get out there, have fun, enjoy it. And for me, it's just a that time of year in the NASCAR schedule, everything is really high stress, high strung. Everyone's kind of walking on eggshells a little bit because you're in the playoffs. Uh, a bad race in those 10 races could ruin championship hopes even if you come in you know, with a huge lead on everybody, one bad race can really put you behind and being able to go out there, enjoy nature, be by myself, or maybe be with one or two other people. It's just a good reset. When I come back, I'm like, okay, these are the things that really matter in life. Yeah. This, the NASCAR stuff matters doing well matters, but it's a job. It's, it's something I love to do. It's something that is fun. I'm not going to put more stress on myself because of it. So even yeah. if I just go bow hiking for four days, it's still a great experience.
0: Yeah. Do you – are you just ate up with the elk and it's like if I'm going out there, it's going to be elk? Or do you mm-hmm. dabble with some other stuff like an archery antelope hunt or a mule deer hunt or, you know, any anything else for that matter? Or is it, nope, we're doing elk. If we're going out there, I'm chasing bugles. So –
1: uh montana i have a combo tag again so if i come across a mule deer i'm going to shoot a mule deer uh but it's not something that i'm this is like i'm not setting out to hunt mule deer every year i think they're cool but i think just i really want to shoot an elk bugle and you know even not not even a huge bull just a nice bull yeah uh i've shot a cow so i mean i have shot elk but not I just want to shoot a nice bull. I've had antelope tags in my pocket going out there. You know, you pick it up like in case you're driving into the unit, you know, you get into the unit, you get to a little piece of public and there's antelope in it. Like, yeah, maybe I'll pull the truck off the side of the road and try to go after in my blue jeans. But you have i try to have as many tags in my pocket. But again, it's if I cross that, I'm going to do it. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to hunt three different tags in one week. But if I were to like, as I'm hunting in, as I'm going in for elk, if I were like last year, I came across the mule deer, popped in this field and he was on the other side of this meadow, 61 yards away. And I'm like,
0: wow, okay, (laughs)
1: here we go. Shoot this mule deer. If he presents a good shot, the way he was angled, it was not a shot I wanted to take. And so I was like, if he presents it, I'll, yeah, I'll put an arrow through him, but I'm not hunting for the mule deer. I'm not like glassing a mule deer or yeah specifically hunting for him.
0: Yeah. so you would never go out there with only like a mule deer tag. like i don't have an elk i'm just hunting mule deer like you're like that's ah, i would rather do the elk than the. oh
1: no yeah. it, i i'm going out there during september 17th to 23rd next yeah. year whether i have an elk tag or not um, i'll try to get a mule deer tag i'll try to you know pick something up but i could always over the counter it at colorado while that's still an option i just the I feel like mule deer are not like whitetail, but they're kind of like whitetail. They might take a little bit more time, you know, to find, to kind of set up on. Uh, they seem like a little more of a slow play uh, than maybe elk. Elk are like, you know, everyone, I know people hate this saying, but elk are like turkeys. When it's that time of year, they're just making a whole bunch of noise and it's just fun to go, oh, they're over that way. Yeah. Let's figure out how to get over there.
0: When it's hot and heavy, it's it, it is like nothing else. I mean they're literally like mountain dragons with swords on their heads and they're just like <laughs> screaming. Awesome. I I mean I've had it a few times where we've been close enough but still like thick black timber so you can't see it yet. But it's bugling so loud your chest is rattling. And you're like yeah. dang, like that's some loud like I don't know. Some bulls they don't they're not like I've seen them bugle at forty yards and they're not that loud still. But other bulls and maybe it's just the way, like, the black timber makes everything, like, echo and reverb. But, yeah, it, it's there's something special about it. That's why every year we pretty much always are doing a, an archery elk hunt. Our group really doesn't. We've talked about it because it's hard to get tags year after year, and it's hard to align schedules. Like, our group is eight people, so it's hard to align schedules. It's hard to get everyone drawn. Pl- you can't apply as a true group almost anywhere because they all have group size restrictions. And so we've talked about like, well, what if we did like a spot and stock mule deer hunt or a rifle elk hunt or a rifle mule deer hunt? And everyone's like, no, eh, I don't know. I mean, that's not like I'd say no, but if I have one week, I'm a, I want to chase bugles.
1: Yeah, I think too, for me, I'm not against doing, you know, a later season hunt uh, or a rifle hunt. It's just when I get to that point in November, when the season's over, I've traveled for 40 weeks, I got to spend some time at home. To come home right after the season's over and pick up and leave for you know two weeks or drive somewhere out west, I my wife would not be thrilled about it. And again, I want to be home. I've spent time away. Like, yeah, I might do something like a whitetail hunt around uh, the area for a couple days, but yeah, it's tough.
0: Are you so? What does the off season look like for a NASCAR team? Like, are you practicing in the off season between basically? It sounds like Halloween to Valentine's Day, or or is it kind of uh, just free time? It's
1: a little of both. So we have a lot of the a lot of the stuff that we use throughout the year. A lot of the equipment, um, the pit boxes, you know, all that kind of stuff that travels with us every weekend that we kind of work out of. Those that equipment comes back to the shop. We tear it all down. We get it repainted, repowder coated, refix things that get broken because it just gets banged up throughout the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're just spending time freshening things up, essentially. The month of end of November into December, and then once January kicks around, once the New Year starts, we're right back back out there practicing. So we get about a month and a half, almost two months, where we're not doing pit stops, not practicing, um, letting our bodies recuperate, heal, just taking some time away. But we're still working. We're still trying to, you know, get everything ready for the New Year because you only have it's dang, it's only three months from when the season's over about to when it starts again. Yeah, so you don't have a ton of time.
0: Yeah, it does sound like it's it. It sounds like it's year round, basically. Like, yeah, it's it's forty week season, but it's year round. It's a year round gig, right? It's a year round job, because it sounds like it's kind of like farming. Like, yeah, we the harvest is done, but then we got months of fixing everything we broke throughout the year, getting everything ready, making any tweaks we decided we wanted to make, and yeah, that does sound like a lot of work.
1: Um, yeah, you just kind of, like during the season, everything is, you, there's not enough time to fix anything. It's just kind of you band-aid it, and you just figure wait until you figure it out at the end of the season. And the end of the season's a little more low stress. It's a little more laid back. Um, you know when the first race is going to be, yeah, and you know when they're coming to pick up the equipment to bring it to the racetrack. So as long as your stuff's done, the cover's on it, and it's out back ready to load for them, then just kind of get it done at your own time.
0: Yeah. Who's the real boss on your on a NASCAR team? Is it the driver or is there someone else that's making all the decisions that the driver reports to? Like, how does that kind of work? I've always been curious.
1: Yeah. So, like, the hierarchy on a NASCAR team, I guess, would be you have your crew chief and your driver are pretty equal. Uh, I wouldn't say either one's higher than the other, but the crew chief is going to be the one he is. If you look at a flow chart, he'd be at the very top of it, you know. He's the one that everyone kind of, he has, then under him, he's got his engineers that are figuring out race strategy, car setup, doing all that. They feed him the information and the drivers over here, you know, feeling how the car is, how it's reacting at the racetrack, what he needs to make the car faster. And then that group engineers, crew chief driver, all kind of work together. And the crew chief's the one who actually makes those decisions. Like, this is the setup we're going to run. These are the laps we're going to pit on. This is when we're going to take four. This is when we're going to take two. This is how much gas we're going to need. And he's the one that is, you know, ultimately the, the head coach of that individual team. Now, like Hendrick Motorsports, we have four teams inside of, so we, Hendrick Motorsports is the five car, the nine car, the 24 and the 48. And then individually, each one of those car numbers, that's each one has a crew chief, driver, engineers, oh. So as an organization, we have four teams, but individually on the weekend, we operate as, you know, our little facet, our one team.
0: Yeah. So is that where, like, the drivers, they say, hey, they're on the same team, so, like, those two drivers could be working together? Because, like, two cars are faster than one, right? Is that is that true?
1: Some places we go to, yeah, that's definitely true. Okay. Uh, uh, you want to work. You're definitely not going to do something that is like that's not going to, to you. help your teammate out intentionally because that's an awkward conversation on Monday or Tuesday in the competition meeting. So you're going to try to help your teammates win because if, if, if we can't win, I want one of our other three cars to win because right. it's good for the organization. Okay. So yeah, well you try to help each other out as much as you can, but at the end of the day, when you're, when it's Sunday and you're fighting for a win, you're, you're your own team. You bring your own friends to the racetrack and you want to go out there and do that,
0: yeah. So that was, I guess, you answered my next question: is like who owns the operation? Because there's like a lot of employees, a lot of expensive gear, obviously an expensive car. Like, there's got to be some money at play. So, is it common where the driver owns the operation, or is it more common that the like? I I think of like big name drivers. I don't know a lot of them, but like real big name drivers, are they usually the owner of the operation? Or is it typically like what you said, Hendrick's Motor? Is it Hendrick's Motor?
1: Yeah, Hendrick Motorsports.
0: Motorsports. They have four teams, and like that's – is, like, one of the drivers of the four cars a Hendrick? That's, I guess, what no. I'm asking. Okay.
1: No. Uh, Rick Hendrick owns all four of those cars. He also owns all the Hendrick dealerships across, you know, the country. Uh, so he is very tied into the car world. I would say there's really only two teams right now where a driver is co-owner on a team. Um, typically that's not how it works. You kind of have a car owner that owns the the whole operation and they the drivers are contracted through them. There's really only, like I said, two drivers in our sport right now that are affiliated or have ownership stake in a team. Um, so it's not as common. Okay but it is, it's
0: not unheard of. It happens. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's not unheard of. There's always kind of been one at some point, you know, that has ownership in a team. Um, and maybe that the ownership stake is part of the way that they, you know, negotiated their contract to get the salary, you know? So, Hey, instead of maybe paying me X million dollars to drive, give me, you know, 10% ownership in the company. I don't know. But so it does seem like that can be a, you know, a negotiating or bargaining tool for them that also sets them up when they're done driving. They have something yeah, else to be a part of.
0: Yeah, I got you. I, yeah, because I was just curious of, like, how – so that then the race car driver is probably, like, obviously a hired position, whether he's a contractor or an employee, but, like, he has to probably go through a lot of vetting and performance and tryouts and show that he he's the, he's the one you want driving your car because at that point it's a pretty big investment, I assume.
1: Yeah, we have um, the NASCAR Cup Series is the the peak in, you know, racing in America, uh, motorsports in America. So there's a lot of feeder series that kind of, you know, start at the very bottom and feed all the way up to that. You have, you know, your local shorter track stuff on the weekend where, you know, just your average Joe is out there with his race car trying to have fun, compete. Uh, Maybe some young kids got aspirations of getting to the Cup Series one day. And then, you know, you kind of move up that ladder of like the local short track stuff to maybe some regional stuff to the truck series, then the Xfinity series. And then you get all the way to the top in the cup series. So for a driver to be in the cup series, you, you kind of have to prove yourself at each level on your way up there. And, you know, owners take note of that. They pay attention. Uh, you know to people that are coming up but it's another thing where it's a performance-based sport if you're not performing when you get to the cup series you might only get a couple years or a year or two to kind of prove yourself or prove your worth and then they'll move you to get somebody else in because it's all about winning races it's all about running in the front and if you're not doing it they'll find somebody else that can
0: yeah so that leads to a good point when you said it's like a performance sport, and obviously, like that goes for you on the crew, it goes for the driver, it goes for the the crew chief, everyone obviously has to be performing. And so, I was just going to ask, like, when you when you go to the gym, because obviously, you know, you post a lot of stuff from the gym. Are you thinking, like, hey, I'm training for NASCAR, or are you thinking I'm training for the mountain?
1: Most of the training I do is training for the sport I play, which is NASCAR. Okay, It's not... There are things now... There are points in the year where I might ramp up certain parts. Like, I've been doing a lot of lower body, a lot of lunges, a lot of, you know, walking on the incline, treadmill, running, step mill, doing that kind of stuff to, you know, build up leg strength and endurance for this. But I have to be careful because I spend if anyone's ever watched NASCAR race and you've watched pit stops, I'm the guy that runs around and is jumping, landing on my knees spending, you know, sitting in front of the wheel. So my knees are a valuable asset to me. I can't do too much to make my legs wobbly under the weekend, you know, for the weekend and doing everything I can to maintain as much strength, but not overload those joints because on the weekends I'm overloading them, you know, running and jumping on them. So it's, I have to play like really fine balance of, what's really important and i have enough fitness where i know i can go into the backcountry where i want to go and be okay yeah i might not be the fastest one in there i might have to take a few more breaks but at the end of the day pitting race cars is the thing that you know that pays the bills that pays the mortgage so that's the thing i need to prioritize but uh just generally being in shape throughout the year is important for what i do so it's it just kind of leads into the elk hunting thing where it's yeah, I might do a few things to kind of tailor it getting ready for the season, but I don't overhaul what I do uh, just to go elk hunting.
0: Yeah. that's It's interesting because most people that we talk to, the fitness is 100% for the mountain. I mean, that's I would, I would love to be in shape all the time anyway, but without elk hunting, I probably wouldn't really do it. I probably wouldn't really go to the gym, or if I did go to the gym, it would just be like, you know, Bodybuilding style, don't even break a sweat type workouts. Where because I elk hunt, now I'm pushing myself. I'm like a puddle of sweat after every time I'm at the gym. And it's it's solely because of that. Like I drive a desk for a living. So I don't need to be in the same shape you need to be in to perform. And so I just, I always think it's interesting. Like, yeah, I'm a race car driver or I'm a pick crew guy and I need to be fit. But the real reason I work out, like when I'm in the gym, I, my mind is on those six point bulls.
1: Yeah. I think there's people that do what I do, uh, in NASCAR that are not as, I think I have an advantage with the, you know, athleticism and the shape that I keep myself in and the rest of the guys on our team. So there are people that definitely don't prioritize the okay. health and fitness side of it as from a performance standpoint. So that separates me there and it's just, yeah, I just don't know if it's great. If like, like you said, if you weren't, going elk hunting, you know, you might not be putting the time in the gym. I think it's great for people to have something to look forward to, to be able to put that time in, uh, for us, it's just kind of like a, if I can be 1% better than you before we show up to the racetrack, it's going to put me ahead of you. Um, if you see me in the gym and you're not in the gym, it's in your head. If we come out there on the weekend and we absolutely smash you guys on pit road, it's not because we just got lucky that day it's because we put in the time we put in the effort you know it they know right. it so it's kind of yeah
0: what's the what's like the slowest job on a on a pit stop and like like how long does it take so it's like they're a number where you're like I know this job is gonna take those guys 30 seconds so as long as both my tires are changed under 30 seconds, I'm fine.
1: Yeah so uh, we're way faster than 30 seconds. We're doing four tires. And few, if we just do four tires and we're not waiting on fuel, it's as fast as we can put four tires on. We've done it as fast as eight and a half seconds at the racetrack all the way up into the our average is like a low nine. It's like a nine thirty eight is our season average for the year. For all the stops we've done this year, on average, we're going to do a nine thirty eight for four tires. So the only thing that takes time on a pit stop, which can kill your pit stop, is fuel, we only can flow fuel so fast. Right. And the rate that the gas cans flow compared to the the rate that we can do pit stops like four tires in, if you're taking anything more than 15, 14, 15 gallons of gas in that pit stop, you're going to have to wait on the gas man to get it full. And it's not that the gas man's slow. It's just the fuel only flows so fast and you have to put so much of it in there. You're just kind of like, yeah, we can do four tires in nine flat but it's going to take him 12 seconds to get 19 gallons in. So you just, those are the stops where maybe you don't, maybe you don't push as hard. You know, it's like, I'm not going to push as hard early in the elk hunt, you know, like with marginal wind as maybe I would on Wednesday afternoon or Thursday morning. Cause I'm like later in the week, I'm not worried about blowing those elk out because I'm not going to be there next week. Right. But so the pit stop is kind of the same way when you're going to wait on fuel maybe you don't push as hard. You don't take as many risks. You kind of just back down 10% and just yeah. make sure your job's done before his. And as long as that's the case, then success, you've done everything correctly and car rolls on. But when we get into a situation where we're not going to take, we're going to take nine gallons of gas, he's going to be done before us. Those are the times when you might take a few risks, push the pace, try to close up the gaps really tight and try to gain that two, three tenths on that pit stop because two, three tenths in the pit box could be the difference of one or two positions leaving pit road. One or two positions could get you the lead, maintain the lead. You win the race. So we live and die by tenths of seconds and it's very important. So it's understanding the situation you're in, but yeah, if there's one thing that can take time intentionally, it's fuel. Anything else that adds over that nine, nine and a half second mark is usually some kind of you know mistake or situation we got put in where we just have to adjust or react
0: yeah all right that 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 is fast obviously like the engineering like your tires aren't a six lug tire anymore isn't it one big no. lug where you just like yeah. you put it on you seat it drive it home it'll seat itself align itself and we're off again
1: yeah we We've changed. We used to be five lug nuts. Uh, Last year was the first year, 2022, where we were the big one lug nut. Yeah. Which kind of like every other mainstream, you know, F1, um, sports car racing, IndyCar, everyone else is one lug nut. It was only a matter of time before we got there. From someone who was, I was really good at changing the five lug nut because I had really fast hands. I could hit five lug nuts just as fast, if not faster than everybody else on pit road. So that's where I made my money or my stamp. Was I was really fast at doing that. So going to the one lug nut, I kind of had the hesitation of, is this going to be something I'm going to be good at? Because everyone has to start over. Well, at the end of the day, you're still changing tires, whether it's one lug or five lug. Everything that I did that made me good at five lugs is still the stuff that's going to make me good at one lug. So it changed it. It made our pit stops. We were doing... 11 and a half second pit stops. Now, like I said, we're doing eight and a half second pit stops. So we're faster. So we're more important. We're more valuable to the team. We can be a bigger asset when needed. And it just, we're in racing, man. We want to go fast. So anything that makes you faster, we're, uh, we're going to do it.
0: It's crazy when you say that, though, because what I heard was it only took you three extra seconds to do four lug nuts, which is flying. Yeah. Like, beep, 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 Like, done
1: yeah i mean no it's like, like back in the heyday when we were five lug nut and everyone was at their prime we were building our own pit guns like it was the wild west of changing tires it was amazing before nascar put a bunch of restrictions and rules on us you could hit five lug nuts at six tenths of a second that's five off the guy puts the wheel on and let just over a half second i've hit five lug nuts on and i'm already gone leaving and a lot of people, when they watch that in real time, or you watch a video of it, you're like, "That
0: I don't know how you even." You don't, don't do the star method though, either, do you?
1: No, you just go around in a circle.
0: Is that so? Like my dad will tell me every time we change a tire that you have to go in a star, which is probably I do right that for on my pickups, but street like, cars, yeah. So your tires are different, or they're like aligned, or he's got it on there straight, so you don't have to worry about that, or is it just like we're going to take this tire off in 45 minutes anyway, so it doesn't really matter how straight it is.
1: It's so like in your car, you want to make sure it's completely seated against the wheel. yeah, you're the one who you're the one who's putting the lug nuts on. you know, you're also trying to hold the wheel up against the hub. Um I have someone who would hold the wheel up against the hub. and actually the way the hubs are or the the wheels are built for the NASCAR, like when we used to use steel wheels, they were actually sprung. So the center of the wheel, where the lug nuts are was actually had a little bit of spring to it. There was two bands, an outer band and an inner band. They were at different planes. So they were sprung kind of like a washer, you know, if you ever get a sprung washer. Yeah. So, yeah, as long as you got the first one tight or close to tight, you were going to get the other four tight. And I I don't recommend this for someone driving down the road, but you don't need all five lug nuts for the wheel to be tight. And like you said, we're going to come back in in 20, 30 minutes, 40 laps anyways. We're going to take it off. You just... Need as many lug nuts is going to get, keep that wheel tight as possible. So some racetracks, that's three, some racetracks, that's four, some racetracks you want all five, but there was a game we used to play there too, where, you know, you have five on the wheel. You don't need five to get the wheel tight. You only really need four. So if you could not hit that fifth one, it shaves a little time off. You start playing those games.
0: Doesn't and, uh, that uh, at yeah, their it's... speeds though, wouldn't that cause like a major vibration? Cause there's nah. not. no, no. Nope. Wow i don't know i'm an engineer so i would, I was my first thought was like man yeah if you didn't do it but if they're not balanced then you're just gonna have a huge vibration but
1: i mean the wheels it's all the so think about it. i mean you'd you understand it though like all of that weight that the one lug nut that's missing we're not talking about a ton of weight yeah no. it's like a wheel weight but you're putting like little one ounce wheel weights all the way in the outside of the wheel because you're further from the center yeah so like that lug nut is really close to the center it's still on the hub Yeah, no, I I see what you're saying. I just
0: figured the speed would start to like, like, yeah, if you were going 35 miles an hour, you would never know. But if at 200 miles an hour, I feel like that would have been like, (laughs)
1: you'd be, you'd be surprised. Like you'd, you'd hit the other four. You'd leave one on the end of the stud. It's just being held on by like a little bit of weather strip adhesive. And you're like, there's no way when this car comes back, that lug nut is going to be on the end of that stud. Because it's gonna get slung off with the G forces and everything that's going on. Like there's no way it's gonna be there. You come in the next pit stop, that thing is sitting right on the end of the stud just like you left it. No way. Oh yeah, it's it's like the first time you do it, you're like, that's gonna be gone by the time we come back. You come back and it's still there and you're like, okay. I don't know how that happened, but oh so they start doing it. You start realizing you're like, Oh, that's so when he
0: carries the tire out, all the lugs are in the tire and they must be like adhesive to the tire rim. And then when he puts it on, they'd hit the stud and then they'd be stuck to that instead. So that way they're ready for you to just hit them with the gun.
1: Yeah, so we used to glue them onto the wheel yeah. uh, with like a weather strip adhesive so it was pliable. Yeah. And then when he puts the new tire on, which has got the lug nuts on it, like the stud isn't, it's not threaded all the way to the end. You know, it's right. got a little bit of a shank on it. Yeah. So when it'd go on, those lug nuts would sit on the shank. And then all I had to do was hit the lug nuts that were sitting there to tighten them up. Yeah, Yeah. so that one was just being held on on the end of that shank with a little bit of glue just holding on for dear life.
0: That's crazy. I got to ask, how does your tire carrier get the tire on the 5? Like back more when you were doing 5-stud. How does he get it on the 5-stud like first try every time? Because when I change my truck tires – you know, you're like, ah, you like rotating it this way and that way, and you're trying to like get it on. And I mean, it takes me a heck of a lot longer than nine and a half seconds just to mount one tire than to seat all of them.
1: It's so there's a little bit that goes into it. Um, the way that the lug nuts are, like the holes are on the rim, and you know, there's spokes on your rim. Yeah. Only one spoke lined up with one lug nut hole. That was, they're designed that way. So that way, if you grab this one spoke all the time, it's like grabbing your bow in the same spot all the time. You know where your hand is. Okay. You know where things are going to be. Like you the way he's grabbing the wheel, he knows where his the lug nut holes are going to be. Right. He can see the pattern or the the where the hub is on the car and as he's throwing it in there, he can, you know, just align it. It's like someone who can hit a golf ball really well. It's like how do you do that? Well, you have the same setup every single time. You go through the same process every time yeah. and you can Hit the golf ball the same way every time. Someone can, I can't. But there is a process to it, and it's also why we're professionals. It's it's literally what we practice. It's what we do. It's how we make a living. So yeah, you're gonna figure out how to be good at it.
0: Yeah, that is true. And and if you're not like me, that's why I'm not a NASCAR team. I'm not on a NASCAR team. So, but yeah, man, just like that, Jeff. We're we're getting close to an hour, and um, I don't want to cut us off, but I do have another. We have another podcast right after this too. So I want to give you a chance to uh, share any of your channels, social media, or anything you got going on, whether it's NASCAR or Western hunting with the audience before we wrap up and give them a chance to kind of connect with you and follow your journeys.
1: Yeah, so uh, you can find me on Instagram at Jeff Cordero underscore. Uh, same place on YouTube. The Instagram is a little bit more. You'll get more of the NASCAR stuff. Uh, you know, NASCAR archery, kind of what I have going on throughout the season. And then the YouTube stuff, if you're into archery, hunting, uh, archery in general, hunting, that's where you're going to get most of that. But yeah, if you guys haven't watched a NASCAR race, I encourage you to watch it. There's a lot more that goes into it than just turning left. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's kind of what I've dedicated and devoted my life to, uh, cause it's the profession I chose and it's a lot of fun. So I check it out.
0: I would want, I want to watch the NASCAR, like, you know, if NASCAR is on ESPN or what, I don't even know. I'd want to watch ESPN two where the cameras are all reversed and they're pointed at you guys. Like I want to watch that part of the show. Like what you guys are doing, like the lap before they're coming in, like quick, quick girl, let's go Where He's coming in 30 seconds. And then like all that stuff. And then also it's like woo, woo, done. And you're like, holy shit, that was fast. I want to watch that side of it.
1: Yeah. Uh, there's, they do a pretty good job on the broadcast, you know, yeah. showing pit stops, replaying pit stops, uh, good things, bad things. So. But they
0: probably follow the car. Like, once the car leaves, they're not looking at the pit anymore. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, not probably not. I want to – like, but that stuff so it would be really cool, too, like, as you're getting the next set of tires out and the next set of everything. And, yeah, I think that, like, obviously you don't just, like, work for nine seconds and then take 30 minutes off.
1: Yeah, you, you kind of get into the – I'm not going to get too far, but you get into the thing where it's – people see the racing, but they don't see what happens behind the scenes. And usually what happens behind the scenes is way more interesting than what's actually going on, on the racetrack under caution labs.
0: Yeah. That's what I would, that's what, that's exactly what I was saying is I don't want to watch that stuff behind the scenes, but, but yeah, thanks for uh, being here, Jeff, sharing some of your day job, sharing some of your Western hunting experiences and uh, good luck. Good luck on both really I mean, good luck this fall out, elk hunting We'll have to stay in touch and see see those uh, pictures of your four-day successful elk hunt. And then good luck, obviously, on the racetracks on the weekends too.
1: Man, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks good for being Good luck to you here.
0: as well. And thank you for listening, folks.